Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I have a question for us as we begin. Do you have a story of God's protection when you had zero control of the outcome? There's a true story of a toddler who was with his family in a big superstore uh, in Europe. And just for a split moment, this child in the cart is left alone. And it was enough time for someone somehow to see an opportunity to wheel the child away. When the family discovers that the child is missing in that split instant, they start looking through every aisle for the longest 10 minutes of their life. Uh, they're, they're believers, so they're praying and asking God for, for just a, an answer. Finally, they, they make their way in despair towards uh, the Welcome Center in hopes that maybe someone, something ha- some, somebody had heard something. And lo and behold, there's the child being wheeled in from the outside. What happened? Well, they asked the lady who brought this child in, and the lady said, I found this child in his cart crying at the far end of the supermarket's uh, parking, parking lot, parking garage. So think uh, big Walmart superstore and the child's at the whole end of that area. And so the, the big question, the big mystery remains, what happened? You know, was there a kidnapping? Did, did someone take the child away? Well, most assuredly, because he's at the end of the, of the garage, right, of the, of the parking lot. But then what happened? Was there maybe, was this alleged uh, kidnapper uh, surprised by something or someone that maybe scared him away? And this woman that brought him back in, was she maybe an angel? We'll, we'll never really know. But what we can be for, for sure of is that God, God's provision and God's protection was in full-blown uh, action at that point. Now, uh, that helpless toddler was me. I'm a testimony of God's protection over me as a child when I had zero control of the outcome. And I share this story because it's a little similar to the story we just read today about Jesus. Jesus is no more than two years old. And you got to understand that it's not just humanity against him. You've got the full forces of evil trying to do everything to get rid of this Messiah. I mean, the devil is out of his mind freaking out because if this Messiah comes to be, 
then the devil's lost. But, but this Messiah is a child, so there's still hope to do something, right? And so the devil is up to speed now that the Messiah is born. It's been two years. Think about it. He's been looking for two years. He still can't find him. Finally, he gets wind through the wise men that, that there's, there's this wise men that have seen this star. And so the, the devil actually uses Herod, who in turn uses the wise men to find this king. But when the wise men, with all their calculations, find the baby Jesus, well, instead of reporting it to Herod like they were supposed to, they um, actually instead throw a big baby shower fit for the king. I mean, they bow down. They offer costly gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then that evening, they are warned in a dream. And we see that happens a lot in this story. They are warned in a dream, and instead of going back to Herod, they depart another way, leaving Herod and the devil completely stumped on the whereabouts of this Messiah. What a story of God's protection and provision. And yet it's only the start. Watch as the danger closes in. So let's go back to our text this morning and kind of look at it line by line. In verse 13, we read, Now when they had departed, who's they? The wise men who are now safely on their way back. Meanwhile... All is not well in Bethlehem. I mean, the, the waters are, are stirring up, but God has already set his rescue plan in motion. How does he do that? Again, through a dream. We read, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And in this dream, basically he wakes up from this warning dream that we're going to find out what, what, is, what it is. And he wakes up to a true nightmare. His family is in imminent danger. And in this dream, there's a command. And the command is this, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Why Egypt? We're going to talk about that this morning, of all places. Now, one thing to know is that it wasn't unusual for a Jewish family uh, to go to Egypt. There was actually a large, prosperous uh, Jewish community there. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus would have no problem uh, settling there. But wait, there's myrrh and gold and frankincense. Remember these expensive gifts from the wise men? So isn't it interesting how that would have provided sufficient means for them to start over? Notice again, God's provision over this family. But then the question remained, how long? Well, in the dream, there, there was that warning, but there was also the direction. How long? Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so they flee. Now, you would not want to be on the bad side of Herod the Great. Let me tell you, this is his reputation. He killed his wife. He killed his sons and daughters. He killed anyone really who got in the way. And so when the wise men come to, to King Herod in Jerusalem, you know, he acts and pretends like, oh, let me go worship this king. When in reality, all he wants to do is destroy him because he will be the only king. And so we read verse 14. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Don't you just love Joseph's prompt, quick, swift obedience? Man, what a, what a lesson for us even. But imagine hap this happening to you. Imagine you're warned in a dream that there's imminent danger for your family. In the middle of the night, you have to wake up, wake up your family, pack whatever you can, and disappear to travel 400 miles and escape from a madman, never to return, so it would seem. You'd have to wait who knows how long. There was no end in sight. What an incredible story of Joseph's obedience, but also God's provision on this precious family. 
But what I want to point to today is how Matthew actually concludes this story. He says all this to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. That's our focus this morning, because I want to show you how Matthew somehow links this story that we just heard to an Old Testament passage, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And as we'll see, it, I don't think Hosea is really thinking about the Messiah when he writes this passage. So how is Matthew determining then that it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And that's what we're going to look at. You're going to see this is actually a very important piece of theology to understand. And so this morning, let me just kind of set it up for you. This is what I'm hoping we will glean from this text. That first of all, we will understand how the early Christians would interpret the Old Testament. Therefore, how we should also read the Old Testament. We will grasp a greater picture of the mission and purpose of Jesus. You could say these two points are going to be more theory, maybe more theology. And so just get your listening ears, your student ears on for this part. But then I also want to end with us looking back at that story and seeing God's great protection and provision being on full display and how that can maybe encourage us in our walk with Christ. That would be probably the more uh, applicable side of this message. So let's dig in. The first thing is this. Matthew shows us how to interpret the Old Testament. The first obvious point is when we read Hosea, we quickly see that Hosea is not knowingly predicting the Messiah. He's actually looking back at an event that took place hundreds of years earlier when God brought Israel out of Egypt, the people Israel. So let's read to get some context here. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they, who's they? Israel. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bowels and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. When you read this passage, does it sound like it's the Messiah? No, this is clearly talking about Israel. To understand Hosea con- the Hosea context is that this is a collection of poems and prophecies about God's relationship with a rebellious people. And, and if you read through the, the book, I actually took the time even this week just to listen to the whole book in its entirety, not necessarily stopping on specific verses. And man, it can be rough. Like some of the consequences that the people of Israel would have to endure, it's, it's crazy. But in the end, even though there's these hardships because of consequences of sin, because of God's own love and compassion, not because of anything the people of Israel would do, but because of God's own love and compassion and faithfulness in his name, by his name, God would deliver them and they would be restored. And so by the time we get to chapter 11 of Hosea, this is a beautiful poem that depicts God as this loving father who raised his son, Israel, but this son grew up, turned against the father, rebelled against the father. And so very clearly, when you look at this chapter, this is not a forward-looking, predicting prophecy of the Messiah. It's looking backward to Israel's history, but it's so important because it points to a very sad truth, a sad reality, that God's son, Israel, failed in being the blessing to all nations. That was the son's calling, to be a blessing to all nations, but Israel failed by rejecting him, by worshiping idols instead. And before we go blaming Israel, if anyone was in the same boat in that time in history with that people, we would do the same. 
So Hosea is clearly talking about Israel. And that's what makes the fact that Matthew sees this actually as a fulfillment so beautifully mind-blowing. This is amazing because now we need to answer the question, how is the fact that Jesus went to Egypt a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? I mean, if, if Hosea is talking about, about Israel, where's the link here? The key lies in an ancient interpretive method known as typology. So what is typology? Let me give you a definition by Jonathan Lund. He's the professor of New Testament at the Talbot School of Theology. And he says this, typology refers to events, institutions, or people from the Old Testament that foreshadow future things. The earlier thing is called the type and the later thing, the anti-type. So what Matthew is doing is he's pointing to God's son Israel as the type and God's son Jesus as the anti-type. Or should we say, and this is how Matthew says it, the fulfillment. As we read again, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that word fulfill in Matthew, in the Greek, the word fulfill there is the, is the word plerothe. And plerothe means this, to make full or to complete. And so what Jesus, what Matthew is showing here in Jesus is that Jesus completes the Old Testament. And this is what's so beautiful because it's easy to see how Jesus completes it when it's been predicted. But it's a little harder when you understand that Jesus completes things that were actually hiding in plain sight. So here we see that, um, and we saw this the last two weeks, right? Isaiah chapter seven was the first week and it was specifically forward looking uh, to and predicting to uh, the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's very clear. It's a prediction. Last week, Micah chapter 5, very clear that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But this uh, passage in Hosea is not so clear. Why? Because instead of having it be as a prediction, it's fulfilling the Old Testament. In other words, it's completing what was hidden. And that's what Jesus does here as we look at, at, at the Old Testament and how he does it throughout Matthew, we're going to see. Because you need to remember, Matthew is a gospel directed to the Jews. And so we have to understand when we're reading Matthew, that we're reading it through the lens of a Jew and how the Jew understood its history. Israel understood its history. And so for them, it's making all the sense in the world. Matthew is saying that Jesus is bringing to light what previously was in the shadows and what was all this time hidden in plain sight. When we grasp this, we better understand how to interpret the Old Testament. Through Hosea 11, Matthew is purposefully drawing a strong connection between Jesus and Israel. And so, in Hosea, God grieves over his son, Israel, who's turned away from him. And what does Matthew do? Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes those very words of Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, and reveals subtly, yet very powerfully, a deeper meaning. By quoting Hosea, Matthew is saying, guys, I have great news. That's why it's called the gospel of Matthew. I have great news. I have good news. God is going to do it again. That's what Matthew's saying here. God is going to do again. Do what? Entrust the fate of the world in his son's hands. Only this time, this son is Jesus, the only begotten son, the only one sinless and pure who could actually truly be the blessing to all nations, God himself. God on the other side of the covenant with God. 
That was the only way that it was going to be possible. And so by claiming here in this passage, Matthew, by claiming that Israel out of Egypt is actually fulfilled in Jesus, Matthew is revealing that Jesus is in fact the new Israel. And in this way, the mission and purpose of Jesus is further unveiled, again, to the Jewish reader as this gospel is meant specifically for them. Because now the Jew who's reading this is thinking, wait a minute, Israel's Old Testament purpose was to mediate God's blessing, was to mediate God's presence, was to be a glory to the nations, and boy, did we fail at that. And, and yes, the, the, the Israelites would benefit from the promises, but they were also called to be the agents of these promises. And Israel failed because of their sin. But would God's plan be thwarted as a result? No. Enter God's son, Jesus. Matthew shows us how actually Jesus relives the history of Israel. It's actually beautiful when you understand it and look at it from that perspective. When you read Matthew, even just the first 10 chapters, Jesus is reliving the history of Israel as the antitype of Israel. The only difference, though, is that whereas Israel failed, Jesus would succeed every time, bringing redemption to all who believed through his sinless life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. You see, Matthew intentionally retells Israel's well-known story, but with Jesus now as the main character. Let me, let me show you this real quick. If you read um, in, in chapter 3, where uh, Jesus' ministry is kind of going to start to be public, what's the first thing that happens? Jesus gets baptized. You say, well, did he have to get baptized? No, he was sinless. He didn't have to get baptized. He did it as an example for us, because he would then say it's a commandment. But it was also, I believe, a way of reliving Israel's history. What happened once Israel got out of Egypt? They got to the Red Sea. And what happened there? They had to go through the Red Sea. As Israel's antitype, Jesus is relieving the waters of the Red Sea. And isn't it beautiful that God then confirms Jesus' role as the new Israel when a voice comes from heaven after he's baptized? And what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You go back to Hosea and you remember, oh, God's son Israel. And now God is saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's chapter three. You go a little further. What happened for Israel after they went to the Red Sea? They ended up being in the desert. What happens to Jesus? Jesus goes and is, in is tempted in the desert for 40 days. Israel was uh, in the desert because of their own consequence of sin for 40 years. Chapter five through chapter seven in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Well, for Israel, what happens when they're in the desert is that they're given the law. And in chapter five, Jesus even points that out. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. Can you see it? How Matthew is showing how Jesus is the completion of everything in the Old Testament. He's everything that the people of Israel could not be. He is. And so as you read through Matthew five through seven, how many times you hear the law being mentioned? You, uh, you know, you've heard, do not kill, but I tell you. And so every time Jesus is just uh, uh, reliving Israel's history, but also showing how he is fulfilling it. He is the one that is going to be able to accomplish it. We get to chapter 10 and Jesus chooses the 12 disciples in the same way. It's in, so, in, in sort of a way, a reconstitution of the 12 tribes of Israel. So as you see here, what Matthew is showing is that Jesus's identity as the new Israel is clearly portrayed here. And so if we go back all the way to chapter two, our passage this morning, it all started with 
uh, Israel uh, and Israel's exodus. And so in the same way we see here Jesus' exodus from Egypt, just like Israel. And so kind of to sum that idea up is what Alexander Stewart says in his book, The First Days of Jesus. He sums it this way. On the basis of the understanding that history unfolds in recurring, escalating patterns, characteristic of God's supernatural um, divine intervention, Jesus the Son becomes the antitype for the type Israel, God's Son. And Jesus' exile in Egypt corresponds to Israel's exile to Egypt prior to the Exodus. And all this, Matthew is saying, all this to fulfill, or now we understand, to complete what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Guys, this is powerful. This is powerful because now we see Jesus is the one who came to complete all that Israel was designed to perform but failed to do because of its adulteries, its idolatries, its rebellion, its waywardness. And now Israel would then be recast in Jesus Christ, the only one worthy and capable to be the blessing to all nations. God sent his son, Jesus, to do what his people couldn't do for others, what his people couldn't even do for themselves. And so what Matthew is doing is he's showing us that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, the new Israel. And that anyone, not just Jew, anyone who puts their trust in God's son, Jesus, will be saved because he is called to be the blessing to all nations. All right, so that was the portion where we put on our student ears, took some notes, and I hope that you see some of the revelation kind of pouring out of these pages of what Matthew is, is trying to do and showing us just the bigger picture of everything. But I want to take a moment now also to just, to just preach to, to share some things that we can maybe take back for us, truths that we can apply as we look back at this story, truths that we can apply to our lives as we leave today. And that's the third point, God's protection and provision on full display. So just like a, a, a good movie, you know, you, you see one angle of the story and then sometimes it has like a flashback and you see the other angle and you're like, oh, I didn't know this was happening at the same time, right? Well, this is kind of what I wanted to do here I want us to revisit this story we just read uh, from a different angle, from the angle of, of the devil and his minions, right? I can just imagine. He knows that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem, and, and he knows through the wise men that, that he is born, right? He's looking all over for him. I can just imagine a huddle where he has put his best minions to the task, and he's like, all right, boys, this is the big one. If we kill him, we win. Right? He's been failing every time. If we kill him, we win. Now, he's a king. So let's look in all sorts of palaces. Just go and look everywhere you can in all these palaces. Are you serious? He's not there? Fine. Just kill every boy in the village and everything around. Send out scouts around. We need to find him. And as he's like talking to his minions, and he, I can just imagine in this huddle, he has this big old map where he's been crossing out the places where his minions say, nope, he's not there, he's not there. And just a slight moment, I can imagine he glances at Egypt, and he's like, nah, he wouldn't send, he wouldn't send his son there. And he, and he keeps on going. And all this time, that's where God sent his son, Jesus, hiding in plain sight. But did you catch that? 
Did you catch that? Because God, what he's doing is he protects his son by sending him of all places to Egypt, which is, by the way, especially for the Jew listening and the Jew reading in Matthew, a cursed land. God sends his son to a cursed land. I want you to to understand this. and I think this can help us in our life because in a sense, I see really two symbols of Egypt that we can use for ourselves. The, The most obvious one, which I will talk about at the end, is Egypt being the symbol of a past enslaved life without Christ. We need a redeemer to take us out of Egypt. We'll talk about that. But in Jesus' case, that's, that's not the case, right? In Jesus' case, it's not a place of, of slavery. In Jesus' case, God sends him to Egypt for a very specific reason, the reason being to protect his son. It seems backward. It seems, it seems kind of like it's not what you would expect. But that's a good point because that means it's not what the devil would expect. And so he's sending him in a place that seems like it'd be a place where there's curse and uh, you know, discouragement and loss, but he sends him there for a reason to protect him, but also for a season, for a reason and for a season. And what I want to say to us as we start to think now a little bit about Egypt being a symbol of, a, of waiting, I want you to see that with God, when you are with God, you can flourish even in a cursed land. See, maybe some of you, you find yourself in Egypt this morning, not the Egypt of slavery, as we'll talk about this, specifically talking to believers who have put their trust and faith in God, but for some reason, you're, you're, you're almost like sent in this season, right? We all have these moments, and these seasons of waiting can be so painful. I imagine Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they could have easily felt forgotten. Like, why were we sent there? Mary, everything that was told about her and her son, and now they're sent to Egypt to be almost forgotten, so it would seem, two long years. And the question is, when will God fulfill his promise? But if we look back at at the type, Israel. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, but did they wander forever? No. In the end, God would have the last word, and what he promised would come to pass. Now, it wouldn't be the generation that disobeyed, but in the end, the people of Israel would see the promised land. And so it's the same for us. You may not understand the season you're in. Just take a step back. Wait, and you'll see a bigger picture, and it will all make sense. Why? Because this is something I hold true uh, for, about my God. Nothing can prevent it if he wills it. It might take a while because of maybe my own uh, um, desire to hurry things up or whatever. I'm the one that gets in the way but I believe that nothing can prevent it if he wills it. If there's something that God has willed for your life, nothing can prevent it if he wills it sooner or later. And so as you're in this waiting season, make sure that you're doing the right thing in this waiting season. And maybe I can hear some people in their hearts saying, but I'm really going through it right now. Maybe there's someone here. And you're like, I'm really going through it right now. You have no idea. And, and so then the question is, why am I in this waiting season? And as I consider it, there's really two reasons. The first would be that it's just simply a time of testing. That, that's what happens. God will allow things to happen. Sometimes we don't understand why. I mean, the, the greatest example is Job. Job was in a great season of testing, and he had no idea why, and he never really even gets the answer. But what did he do? He remained faithful. He remained faithful. And so if you're in a waiting season, because of just a simple testing, then just Wait on the Lord, remain faithful. The other reason you may find yourself in a place of waiting, again, this is not the slavery part, this is a place of waiting, 
is could, it could be because simply a consequence of some bad decisions. We, we all make mistakes. But in a moment of maybe distrust of God or uh, impatience, we went ahead and did something, and now it's the consequence of some bad decisions. What do we do? We need to make sure that we repent and that we wait on the Lord once again. Why? Because if we get back to that position, here's what I find every time. That when we look back, we'll realize we weren't stuck. We weren't wasting away. We were right where he wanted us. And where is it that he wants us? Where is it that he wants you? Dependent on him. Israel learns that time and time again. It's only when you come back to God in this attitude of dependency. God, I need you. That all of a sudden we're back on track. So if, if it's a consequence of a bad decision, make sure you get back to that position in this time of waiting where you are simply dependent on him. Okay, but back to if it's just a test and you don't know why and it doesn't make sense and you don't think you've done anything wrong. Again, that's what Job was saying over and over again. And again, God never gives a reason for why Job went through what he went through. If you're in that position where you really you find yourself in almost an Egypt that God has sent you to, kind of like Jesus being sent as a baby to Egypt, if you're sent there and you don't know why and you're confused, the, the, the advice I would give us is to join Jesus in his prayer at Gethsemane when he too was in front of an impossible task and he prays this prayer that could be ours. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then what did he say? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Lord, not what I will, but, you, but what you will. And that's being dependent on him. And so we're just encouraged to wait on the Lord. We wait on his promises and wait for it because, listen, it will come if it's a promise, if he wills it. But here's the deal. It won't come the way you expect it. It won't come the, the, uh, where you expect it. And I want to encourage someone here this morning. Don't be afraid of the unknown because if you don't know, chances are that our enemy, who is not uh, um, omniscient, it means the devil's in the dark too. See, see what I mean? Just like he had no clue that the, the Messiah would be in Egypt because it just didn't make sense. The things that don't make sense in your life, could it be that God's orchestrating it, that he's in it because he's keeping everyone in the shadows because he's protecting you? Here's a little helpful advice for us as we wait for the blessing. If you're in this place of waiting, don't look for the fulfillment of the promise. Our temptation is to look at how it'll happen, where it'll happen, when it'll happen. And the danger then is that we are no longer dependent. We're trying to orchestrate things in our own strength. But here's the deal. If we look to the fulfillment of the promise, how, when, where it'll happen, that's probably where Satan is looking to. Looking, lurking, waiting to trip you up and distract you. Instead, here's what you can do. Do something that the enemy can't do. Fix your eyes on the promise giver. The devil won't dare look into the light. Here's the truth I know for a fact. I guarantee you Satan isn't looking there. Why? Because darkness can't stand light. So look to the sun. Look to the sun. And if you knew how intricately involved he actually is in your life, how he cares and how he knows, if you're in this place of waiting, how he knows and he cares about you, and he has not forgotten you. Why, how, why can I say this? Just like he didn't forget his son. Because the end of the story is this. It's the fulfillment, the completion of what Hosea said. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
and just be patient and wait for the promise out of Egypt of this place of waiting, God will call you. As I call the band up, I want to talk about the second symbol of Egypt that is more specifically geared towards those that may be in a place of slavery. And you know where you're at. You know, you know where you're at in your relationship with God. And maybe there is some here or maybe some people that you know that you could think about them and say they are in Egypt as a place of slavery. This place is a place that's really referring to our past. All of us were in Egypt, the place of slavery at one time. And Jesus came and rescued us. And he can do the same for you this morning if you are in this place of slavery. But this place of slavery is where we all start. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice how Jesus left his Egypt, relived Israel's history, walked the earth with signs and wonders, announced the kingdom of God here. And then what did he do? He bore our sins on the cross. He went into our Egypt because we were lost in our sins. And Jesus bore our sins. We, re- we sang this song this morning. You stepped into my Egypt. You took me by the hand. You marched me out of freedom into the promised land. And I, I, I hope that everyone can say that in this room, in this, in this past tense. But if that's not you, I pray that today you could say, you step, Lord, step into my Egypt. Lord, take me by the hand. Lord, march me out of freedom into the promised land. And see, that's the good news of the gospel, that Christ did what no other man could do. Christ did what Israel couldn't do. Christ did what no other gods, if they existed, could do. And I use that word because there are many people that believe in many Uh, gods that they have made for themselves. And what do they do with these gods? It's always what you can do for them. It's that you need to come to them. That's the difference between religion and my relationship with God is that everyone has to go to these gods. Guess what? My God came to me. Our Lord came to us. That's the good news of the gospel, what Christ did for us, that Christ came to us. We were rotting in our own Egypt. We were slaves in our own sin. We were lost in our rebellion. And Jesus came down. He came into our Egypt. He lived a perfect life that we could never live on our own. He died a sacrificial death so that we would never have to die for the penalty of our faults. And he rose victoriously, showing that he is the conqueror over death itself. You see, in Christ, God called us out of Egypt. And maybe some this morning, if you come to Christ, guess what? God calls you out of Egypt into freedom, from darkness into light. You say, well, what do I do? It's very simple. Come to Jesus. Like I said, Jesus came to us. His grace, he's offered us his hand. What we do is we respond. How do we respond? Two things. We respond in faith and repentance. We respond in faith and repentance. We say yes to the grace of God, and we we respond in faith and repentance. Lord, I don't want to live this life anymore. I don't want to be on my own anymore. I don't want to fight this on my own. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and doing what I could never do for myself. And so we're going to have prayer teams here at the end of the service, right at the cross here. It's so symbolic and so beautiful. Come to the cross. Come and and lay down your burdens and come and enter into this new life that Jesus offers you. Maybe God wants to uh, continue fulfilling, even though Jesus was the fulfillment through Jesus, he continues to fulfill the prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son, my daughter. He's calling you out of Egypt as well. And so if that's you, 
Whether you're in a place of slavery and, and it's time to just surrender to the Lord, do so. Or you're in a place of waiting and it's time to just put your trust back in God and realize that all he, where, where he wants you is to be dependent on him. Wherever you may be on this journey of life, just surrender to the Lord now and trust that he has everything under control. He has been orchestrating everything from the beginning. You may not see it, but that's because it's hidden in plain sight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, so full of revelation. Even though we read in Matthew, it goes back through history, the Old Testament, how it all connects, Lord, and how, Lord, you, you Jesus, are in almost in, in pretty much every, every page of your word, Lord, or because it was your plan all along. You knew that we would never be able to save ourselves. So you, you planned to send your one and only son, sinless and pure, to do what we could never do on our own. And we thank you, Lord, because you rescued us, you redeemed us, you took us out of Egypt. And Lord, sometimes we find ourselves in another type of Egypt where we're in the waiting and we forget to trust you. We complain like the Israelites. Lord, we want to look to you again this morning, put our trust in you again this morning and come into this state of utter dependence on you. Lord, in this season even, Lord, where it can be mixed emotions with so much going on and maybe some bad memories, maybe some good ones. Lord, we look to you. We look to you this morning to be the one that, that is the answer to, uh, Lord, the most important problem in our life, which was that we were uh, apart from you and destined to death. Lord, thank you because you rescued us and saved us. But Lord, also thank you because your blessings are all around us, even in this, this, uh, this lifetime, Lord. And so we want to claim those blessings for us, not look at, at them or how they will come, but just look to you and find that, Lord, you truly are our reward. We uh, say all this in Jesus' name. We said, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.